Unspoken Issues. Hey everybody, first off, Chris and I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Unspoken Issues. We also want to again thank Ron Friends for coming on the show and chatting with us. For those that are first tuning in, our show is tied directly to the UnspokenDecade.com, the website dedicated to 90s comics. And Unspoken Issues is geared the same way. Usually members of our Unspoken Issues podcast Facebook page choose our content based on a poll pitting two or more issues of 90s comics against each other. Episode 36 was on our experience reading Thunderstrike number one, so if that interests you, feel free to check us out. You can find our podcast on a variety of platforms, including YouTube, Stitcher, and Tuned In Radio. When you look for us, we are part of the W2M network, which hosts other great content involving wrestling, video games, movies, television, and comics. Okay, let's get on with the show. So welcome to the newest episode of the Unspoken Issues podcast. We have a special uh, interview episode today. We've got Ron Friends with us here. We just did an episode on Thunderstrike, so uh, he's going to talk with us a little bit about that. He knows him better than anybody. <laughs> so Ron Friends is well-known for strong runs on The Amazing Spider-Man and The Mighty Thor and for co-creating The New Warriors and Spider-Girl for Marvel Comics. He also penciled the first Spider-Man cover to feature the black Spider-Man suit, Amazing Spider-Man number 252, as well as the first appearance of the Electric Blue Superman and Superman number 123 for DC Comics. Today is here to chat with us about his most 90s creation, Thunderstrike. I didn't get anything wrong there, did I, Ron? Not that I caught, no, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, Chris, I wasn't paying much attention. Oh. I, what I was thinking about was the fact that I'm glad I just listened to your podcast about Thunderstrike before, right? I didn't realize this was all lining up so perfectly, but I actually enjoyed that <laughs> podcast quite a bit. Awesome. I'm great. I'm glad to hear it. Hearing hearing you find out or one of you finding out that Blood Axe was a woman was now, yeah. hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Blew my mind. Blew it's, my mind. And, and what, thirty years later. So there yeah. you go. You know? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a well-crafted red herring there, because I remember, I mean, I mentioned on the podcast, but uh, as a kid reading that issue, I was like, well, it's obvious to this guy. Like, <laughs> It seemed so obvious to me, and then, you know, Jesse got caught with it as well, but yeah. Now, Tom DeFalco is very, very good at writing those kinds of mysteries and seeding different suspects and leading the reader where he wants them to go. Sometimes it's so convincing that he did the same thing with Hobgoblin, to the point that it actually ended up causing problems. But, uh, <laughs> but when it came to Blood Axe, it was just uh, it was just the two of us working on it and our editor putting in his two cents and everything. So we, we didn't have, you know, three other writers to worry about and things like that, like we did with Hobgoblin on Spider-Man. Can you uh, uh, give us a little bit about your background uh, as far as like how you got started in the comics industry? Were you a, a comics fan growing up? Yes, very much so. Very much so. In fact, from the time I was like six or seven, if you asked little Ron friends what he wanted to do when he grows up, <laughs> he would have said, uh, I'd like to grow up and I'd like to work for Marvel Comics and I'd like to draw The Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, so I was very directed from a very, very young age. And I went to a uh, Votech the last two years of high school, had some a terrific instructor there. My my interaction with that and, and with Votech got me a half scholarship to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh for two years, and I had some great instructors there, and that kind of broadened my skill base because they made me realize that you know if you don't get a job in comics, you still want to get a job in commercial art somewhere. So hmm. I uh, tried to do the best I could at kind of broadening my scope, but I never really lost my drive or my desire to work in comics. 
uh, and stayed a fan. And uh, so I was given the opportunity after graduating from the Art Institute to show my samples to then editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. And he liked them well enough to have me submit them as Xeroxes to the office. And they sat in a drawer for about a year. And in the meantime, I got a job at a, a local animation studio in Pittsburgh. And uh, we worked on local and regional animated TV commercials. Uh, we also, the, the things of note that the studio did were the uh, the two Creepshow movies, the animation show oh, wow. Creepshow movies, and uh, the song Running Down a Dream by Tom Petty. Yeah, Tom Petty, yeah. Yeah, huh. they, uh, uh, the studio worked on that. I did very little work on the Tom Petty video, but that was that was the studio's work. But I did work on both creep shows to one degree or another. I was an animation assistant mm -hmm. on the first one and did a little bit of extra artwork, like the opening titles and things like that. And they had um, Kamen. I forget the gentleman's first name, but he actually worked on the original EC comics. So he was doing the transition uh, pages for mm -hmm. the first one. Uh, but then they decided they wanted the creep to be hosting it. So we had to stack down some of his splash pages and add a creep in there, you know, hosting it. So I did those creeps in the first one. The second one, I did the entire pages. I, I did the uh, all the transition pages that you see in the second movie. I, I worked on all of those. And uh, at that point, I was already working at Marvel, so I wasn't in the studio every day, but uh, that was my primary responsibility was producing those pages. Uh, but anyway, yeah, after that year, I got a call from Al Milgram. He handed the phone to Louise Jones, and that got me on Kesar. And the, for the first year or so, everything I did, the, I did a Conan fill-in and two issues of Indiana Jones and uh, Kesar and Star Wars, and all of that was in Louise's office. And it wasn't until I was hired for Marvel Team-Up uh, by Tom DeFalco that I worked outside of her office for a while. Well, well, Spider-Man guest-starring in Kesar got me Marvel Team-Up, and Marvel Team-Up got me a uh, Peter Parker, which got me... The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man, which mm -hmm. got me offered the uh, the you know six issues of Spider-Man that turned into two years. Uh, we I was I, I initially I was hired to fill in for John Romita while he got X-Men on schedule because he was taking over X-Men. But the plan originally was for him to come back to Spider-Man after six months. But apparently, at one point, he had a meeting with uh, Danny Fingeroth in Danny's office where Danny expressed that he was happy with what Tom and I were doing and. JR gave him the nod, and we were on Spider-Man for another two years until a, a new editor decided we weren't going to be on Spider-Man anymore. <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is published history. More questions are right around the corner, but let me first talk about Amazon Music. You're going to find it difficult to find Blood Axe's mid-90s metal hit, Bloody Blast Beats, but you will be able to find ACDC's 1990 album, The Razor's Edge, featuring Gotcha by the Balls, Money Talks, and of course, that great opener, Thunderstruck. If you head to getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network, you can get a free 30-day trial where you can check out over 70 million songs. That's getamazonmusic.com slash W, the number 2, M Network for that free 30-day trial. Uh, you mentioned the kid who collects Spider-Man, which is yeah. kind of regarded as one of the great Spider-Man stories. Can you talk about like the origins of that story? Yeah, it was Roger Stern, and from what I understand, Roger dreamed it. Oh, wow. He woke up one morning, <laughs> and he had dreamed the story, and he spent uh, several days uh, walking around, talking to people he knew, 
at Marvel and asking them if this sounded familiar because he he was sure he must have seen it somewhere. He was sure <laughs> it must it must have been an old Superman story or Superboy or something. And everybody said, no, that, that sounds original to me. And he said, OK, and he told it to Tom DeFalco. And Tom said, I want to buy it. And he goes, but it's only 11 pages at best. It's not a full issue. And he goes, I don't care. We'll find someplace for it. I want to buy it. <laughs> Uh, so it was basically bought as inventory. And when Assistant Editors Month came around and they were looking for things to do to play with the format and everything, they decided that the Assistant Editors Month issue was going to be was going to finish up the story from the issue before and then run the kid who collects. It was left up. DeFalco had decided he wanted me to do uh, kid who collects and Ramita to finish his his lead. But Danny Fingeroth was taking over as a new editor. And the way it was left was I had a phone call from Tom where I said, that was my plan, but Danny's not held to that. You know, Danny's going to have to decide who gets what. Uh, he'll let you know. And I said, okay. Danny ultimately stayed with the, with the same arrangement. And, and everything worked on that story. It's, to this day, one of those rare birds where <laughs> everything seemed to work. And mm -hmm. everybody did fantastic work myself included, my biggest job was to stay out of the way. I mean, uh, it was all on the page. Roger wrote a fantastic story. You would have had to work really hard to screw up that story. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are illustrators out there that could have screwed it up, but you would have had to work really hard because Roger wrote a hell of a story. Our good friend Chris Bailey sent us a few questions here specifically about uh, the new universe. He says, uh, you were involved in Marvel's 25th anniversary in a big way with the introduction of the new universe. Talk to us about your understanding of the original concept of the new universe and the vibe in the company about the project in the very beginning and your feeling about landing the Kickers Inc. gig. Now, I can separate all those questions out if need be, but no, no, I guess. No, no, no. no, no. Okay. Uh, the reason I was laughing is because, uh, the, you know, he here's what I here's what I remember from the whole thing with. Uh, the new universe okay. is that uh, 25th anniversary Jim Shooter announced that he was going to start this new line of books and we didn't know what the whole vibe was of the new universe when we first started working on it okay mm -hmm. uh, Tom I don't remember who had the initial idea but but Tom and I had always wanted to do a kind of a challenges of the unknown kind of group you know mm -hmm. so uh, I think Tom was the one who came up with the initial uh, the initial idea of the football players, off-season football players and stuff. And we started working together on the characters, and, and we started coming up with, uh, you know, different names. And everything. the working title we had was Mr. Magnificent and his Team Supreme. And mm -hmm. it came up with this concept that was very, uh, it, it was very early kind of Kirby, you know. It, they had a... Uh, uh, a vehicle called the Supermobile, and they and they were gonna. You know, our intention was for them to have challengers of the unknown type of uh, adventures, you know, like you know, Scrag the Living Island and all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, they're very crazy, tongue-in-cheek adventures. Uh, and at some point, we came up with Kickers Inc. and we liked it, and we were enthusiastic about it. Then we found out what the new universe was supposed to be, which was the world outside your window. You know, mm -hmm. he didn't want. You know, if you broke a wall down, then you needed to see the pipes and the wiring and all this kind of stuff. And it was starting from a premise where the white event was going to be the one remarkable thing. So the white event tied into everybody's origin. And, uh, you know, but it was going to be very nuts and bolts, real world fiction. When we heard that, Tom went into Jim's office and said, you don't want Kicker Bank then. 
That's not what we, <laughs> that's not what we meant Kicker's Inc. to be. Yeah. And Shooter said, no, no, I, I want Kicker's Inc. because I want a sports book. And Tom said, Kicker's Inc. is not a sports book. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, the lead characters are football players, but I don't know anything about the inner workings of the NFL, and neither does Ron. <laughs> it's not a sports book. And he goes, no, 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 trust me, I, I want a sports book. So what we ended up doing was basically taking a, a bunch of our ideas that were like widescreen fantasy ideas and retooling them as, as like TV movie budgeted you know, okay. TV show. You know, yeah. everything was, you know, we brought, we tried to bring it down to what Shooter was looking for. And it was always a very odd fit. I mean, I think some of the people that worked on the character after we were gone, because I only lasted three issues and Tom only lasted uh, one or two more with plots. But I mean, we, it was our creation and we had no interest. It became what it became. You know, it really wasn't something that we were willing to give up you know, Spider-Man and other mainstream Marvel work for. So other people came on and handled the character, you know, and Jack Magnaconti stayed active up through the pit. And beyond that, I even came back and did a, it was like a five page backup or something in one of the other books. He was in the reserves or something and his commission was reactivated or something like that. He kind of became their, their budget store Captain America type of thing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and they brought Sinnott and me back to do that. Um, so it was, you know, it was very odd. I, I liked the first issue. I, it was the first issue was the first time I got to work with Sal Buscema inking, mm -hmm. and, uh, which was odd, and I wasn't expecting it. And it, it went through a lot of editorial changes, a lot of editorial changes. Mm -hmm. but the shooter was kind of a lot of things. He was kind of reverse engineering because, I mean, I don't know if it happened on every book. I can't speak to how it went on every book, but so much of what we were planning and even what we were actually physically working on had to be adjusted to what the original vision was. There wasn't really a Bible for what the new universe was supposed to be early enough for everybody to pitch ideas that were tailored to that. From what I understand, like uh, Strike Force Moratori might have been a new universe book, but somebody was smart enough to say it really doesn't fit in the new universe, so it was a separate thing. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Kicker's Inc. probably should have been a separate thing. Years later, I mean, the Falco was not interested in pursuing it. But years later, we had uh, in, in Thunderstrike and in Thor earlier, we had uh, Bobby Steele, who was a member of the, the New York Smashers. OK, which uh -huh. was the team from Kickers, you know, Tom uh -huh. and I were just kind of indulging ourselves. And we said, OK, so we established that there was a 616 New York Smashers. And at one point, Kevin, in a conversation with Eric, even says, yeah, Bobby took me to meet the other team, the team players. I even got Magna Conti and Corbin's autographs. So those ah. references to Jack Magna Conti and, and Dasher Corbin from the from Kickers. So we were slowly just kind of tongue in cheek, just little jokes for ourselves, establishing that there was a 616 <laughs> version of these characters. And so at one point when it was between jobs, when we weren't working on anything together, I did, I did some sketches and I came up with a pitch for a 616 Kickers Inc. that could finally be what we wanted it to be originally, uh, you know, with, with monsters and aliens and all that kind of stuff. It never went anywhere, but uh, it was, you know, just one of those things that percolates in the back of your head every once in a while. That's really my only insight to, to the new universe. I mean, I lurk on the new universe Facebook page. 
and I pay attention to that stuff. I see Greg Wright is often posting and giving some insights into stuff and everything. But, you know, that's again, I, I stuck around. See, the first issue was inked by Sal, and I didn't even know it was going to be inked by Sal when I penciled it. I had no idea who the inker was going to be. The second issue was inked by Brett Breeding. He and I had become friends at that point, and uh, the editor wasn't happy with our work, and it was just a mess. Uh, and by the third issue, I had pretty much reached the end of my interest, and I didn't feel I was right for the book we were doing. You know, mm-hmm. At that point in my career, I just didn't feel like I was even qualified to do the book that we were that we were being tasked to do, uh, and uh, so I bailed on the third. I bailed after the third issue, and I think DeFalco had already turned in like one or two more plots, and they got some people on there that you know, it frankly, did a better job of giving Shooter what he wanted mm-hmm. uh, from that book. Well, is anybody upset that that you left the book uh, early? And he also specifically put in here Shooter's reaction. So I don't know if... Uh, I, I have no idea what Shooter's reaction was. I never spoke to him about it. Uh, my contacts with Jim have been few and far between. They've always mm-hmm. been cordial. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't know how we felt about that in particular. I know the editor at the time, and I even if I remembered his name, I wouldn't... Uh, I probably wouldn't wouldn't talk about it. Sure. Uh, but I, I, there, there were, I know he was not happy with the work I was producing. And, uh, you know, I don't think he missed me at all. To <laughs> so uh, but but it was, you know, that happens. Anytime you're collaborating with other people, especially when you're because Tom and I knew it was, you know, I don't know how you watch language on this thing, but we knew it was a, a clusterfuck from the very beginning because. <laughs> That's why he tried to take it back. I mean, that's why he said, you don't want kickers. If you want something from Ron and I, we'll try to come up with something else, but you don't want kickers. And, mm-hmm. you know, Shooter was sure. And as I said, I, mean, I think the people that took over the book probably gave Shooter more of what he was looking for uh, than we were able to do. And by the time the pit happened and, and all of that, that was Shooter was already gone by that point. So Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to actually ask about uh, Tom DeFalco because you guys had a long working partnership. Oh, what do you, you want to know about that bum? Yeah. <laughs> I was just kind of curious how, how you guys got started working together. Did, now, did he work on Spider-Man with you as well or yeah. just Thor? Yeah, uh, actually he, he left as the editor of Spider-Man and Danny Fingeroth hired him as the writer. The first time he had hired me on uh, Marvel Team-Up. Uh, so he was my editor for a while. And during that period of time, he came to a Pittsburgh. He came to Pittsburgh to do a, sh- a show, uh, and he and myself and Jackson Geis, who at that point was Butch Geis, uh, we all went out to dinner. Ended up really hitting it off. Well, you know, I mean, we enjoyed the. I enjoyed the evening greatly. Tom and I realized during that conversation that we liked the same kind of comics. Mm-hmm. That we were, you know, big fans of us, the certain Marvel style and all this kind of stuff. You know, when he he knew I was going to be doing those six issues, he called me up and said, uh, "Well, I just had an interesting conversation with Danny Fingera. How would you feel if um, if if I was your writer on Spider Man?" And I said, "I feel great about that. Is that really what's happening?" And he went, "Yeah, apparently that's what's happening." So <laughs> so yeah, we we got together on that, and it was wonderful. Uh, it's like finding the other half of your brain. He's a fantastic writer. I'm not. But he's also very open to to ideas. He believes if you're if you're trying to write twelve issues of a you know twelve monthly issues of a comic every year, you're an idiot if you don't take ideas from everybody. You know that kind mm. of thing. 
you know, he was he was open to taking ideas from the inkers and from the letterers and certainly from the editor and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we would have wonderful long conversations about the characters from those conversations. Story situations would come up and and he would craft them into uh, wonderful stories. And, and uh, you know, it, some stories were more my ideas and, and uh, less his ideas, but he was always the one who was crafting them into 22 pages. So it was probably, you know, it, it was, I, I felt very, it was wonderfully creative. Uh, working with Tom is one of my favorite things in the world because I, I enjoy working with other writers and I enjoy doing other kinds of, uh, of work. At this point in my career, I just, I want to do superheroes until I die. Mm -hmm. I'm really not interested in, you know, horror or straight science fiction or anything. I, I love superheroes as a genre. I love the kind of stories you're able to tell. I love the kind of humanity you're able to inject into it. And I've always just been a big fan of it. And uh, if I'm lucky enough to actually be working in another 20, 30 years, I just, I'd like to be doing quality superhero stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And Tom is the best at that. So it's been, it's been great. Yeah. Um, after Spider-Man, after we were fired off Spider-Man, we, we were actually lobbying in Ralph Macchio's office for Daredevil after uh, post, you know, post Frank Miller Daredevil, because Frank had just wrapped up his run with David Mazzucchelli and kind of left Matt in a happier, brighter place. I think the last splash page was was him and Karen walking hand in hand in Hell's Kitchen as the sun rose behind them, you know, that kind of thing. It was like really he left it very upbeat, and we went. You know, that would be a great opportunity for us to do what we like to do, you know, get Daredevil back to more dare than devil and <laughs> smiling every once in a while and, uh, you know, fighting street level crime because Tom enjoys writing that kind of that kind of fiction. So we were pitching for Daredevil and Ralph said, OK, we can talk about that, but I could use some help on a couple of fill in Thors. And I had been languishing since being fired off of Spider-Man. I sent back a graphic novel that I was a Punisher graphic novel that I was going to do with uh, Joe Duffy. She had written a wonderful, it was like a screenplay, really. It was a fantastic Punisher story that involved the Yakuza and, and uh, the mafia. And it was, it was called uh, Assassin's Guild. Um, mm. And it was ultimately was done by Jorge Safino. And he did a much better job than I ever could have done on it. You know, I was I was in a bad headspace after being fired off of Spider-Man. So I, I gave that back. I didn't know what was next. I was a little a little afraid I might have to go get a real job, you know. Um, <laughs> but Ralph Macchio came through and and Mike Carlin came through. I did the first Superman annual and those two Thor fill-ins all around the same time, all with bread breeding. And I felt like, wow. Maybe I can still do this. I can get my confidence <laughs> back, get my pins under me, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so that's what I did. And uh, and then when the time came, uh, Ralph said to Tom, you, we, I do have a book for you. And he goes, yeah, Daredevil. And he goes, no, Thor. I'd like you to just do Thor. And Tom was, wasn't was sure he could do Cosmic, so he jumped in on the deep end with the Celestials and, and uh, God War and all this kind of stuff and proved that he could. And we did like seven years on Thor. And in the course of that, we always planned. I mean, one of our early issues introduces Eric Masterson. From the very beginning, one of the things that Tom and I talked about is we, as much as we loved what Walt had done, we wanted to bring back the human connection to Thor. And we wanted him to have a human supporting cast, and we wanted him to have some real connection to humanity like he did with Don Blake, but we didn't want to just do Don Blake again. 
So early on, we introduced Eric always with the plan, ultimately, that he would be linked, that he would, they would be merged. But we just gave it a slow burn because we wanted the readers to actually like re- like Eric first and care what happened to him. So that when Thor rescued him that way, everybody would go, oh, thank God. Okay, <laughs> you go. And they'd gotten to know Eric's situation and his supporting cast and all that kind of stuff. So it was all planned from the very beginning and done, in my opinion, in an incredibly well-conceived and well, well-structured way. Then we had the run with Thor. You know, Tom, at one point, Tom said, okay, we, we had had them merged for a while. And then Tom called me one day and said, what would you think about Eric steering as Thor? And I said, really? He says, yeah, I, I'm just thinking for like for a series of stories, we could get a lot of mileage out of, you know, Eric's personality being in charge. And we, you know, Thor gets banished. Eric takes over. And, you know, we can give him an updated costume. And we, I said, oh, really? We can give him an updated costume? Goes, <laughs> I told him, I tell you, tell you what, let me work on what the character might look like. And then we can talk about it after I figure that out. So Brett Breeding helped me out. And we sat at a table and came up with what became Eric's version of Thor. You know, the helmet from Walt's armor and all that kind of stuff. And once I had that, I said, okay, I'm good with this. Let's go. And so we did that. We did that series of stories, which was always supposed to end. As we were getting ready to wrap that up and Thor was coming back, we were approached, Tom was approached by the sales department and asked, what were the plans for Eric? And he goes, well, there are no real long range plans for Eric because the epic was always supposed to end with Eric perishing, Mm. with him sacrificing himself. And it was the sales department that went, we don't want you to do that. And, Tom, <laughs> and he goes, yeah, because the sales have been great on Thor and the feedback we're getting on Eric is terrific. So we were thinking Eric would be a, a perfect character to spin off into his own book. And we had no idea at that point that they were, they were talking about doing that with Rhodey as War Machine and all this kind of stuff. We, that we didn't know about. We just, know, we just knew that we were being asked to do this. You know, Tom said, what, what do you want that book to look like? And they said, that's up to you. But So there was some talk for a while. I mean, our plan was that Thor was going to become king and Eric would become his basically Thor on Earth. Type mm-hmm. And so there was some talk about just doing Thor, doing stories about Thor being king in Asgard and then doing stories about Eric being Thor on Earth in, in a new Journey into Mystery title. Okay, that was one of the things we talked about, where he wouldn't change his costume and he'd still call himself Thor and he'd just continue his Thor run while Thor is doing, you know, more fantasy, space fantasy stuff as King of Asgard. That was one of the things that got talked about. But then it was decided that, no, Eric should be a new original character and get a, a, a new number one with, you know, that sell that character. Separately but together, Tom and I came up with the name Thunderstrike and... Uh, Pat Olive, who I was sharing studio space with at the time, helped me with the design of the, the mace. And the design of the character was very much the entire team. We went, I went to New York and we had some meetings in Tom's office and I started doing sketches. And, you know, at that time in the 90s, the vests were big and the sleeveless leather <laughs> was big and chains were big. So I tied in as much of that stuff as possible. I mean, of course, we had already introduced Blood Axe, which was our statement on 90s characters already, mm. you know, mm-hmm. which, which you picked up on uh, in your in your research. The beautiful, uh, I mean, beautiful character. Well, and that, but that was one of the things. I mean, we were we were kind of even even during our Thor run when we first introduced Blood Axe, Tom and I had a reputation for being the anti 
90s book, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were doing more throwback type stories and all that kind of stuff. Blood Axe was going to be one of these characters where, you know, we, when we came up with the idea of somebody else taking Scourge's axe, you know, but let's make him the epitome of the 90s. You know, let's make him the epitome of what's happening now. Let's, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, he basically, he's like a an image character exploded on my board, you know. That <laughs> and then we put the pieces back together. A lot of chains, a lot of skulls, a lot of, you know, sharp objects, all that kind of stuff. And so I just went nuts with with leather and, and all that kind of jazz. And uh, we came up with Blood Axe, which I actually thought he was a pretty cool-looking character, too. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was natural for us to carry that over because, you know, we're talking about a period of time where, like, Wolverine was racking up a body count. Anti-heroes were the big thing. Punisher, <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. But our intent with Eric was always to make him, you know, a decent guy with feet of clay who was trying to do the right thing. We would get these letters on on our Thor run and on Thunderstrike where people are going, boy, we love what you're doing with this, like, supporting cast. And Where did you come up with this idea? <laughs> well, those are the comics we grew up on, guys. We're not inventing anything new. It used to be that superheroes had secret identities and didn't just hang around with other weirdos, you know? I mean, they actually had <laughs> lives that you could identify with and stuff, which is not what was being done in most of the books at that point. That's you right. Know? The X-Men were always sitting around in their costumes and they were only interacting with other bizarre characters. And, and there were, you know, some uh, there were oftentimes normal humans that were interacting with them. But it always seemed that if you were hanging around with with a superhero team, you were going to get power sooner or later. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was ridiculous, really, because we were doing kind of a throwback Marvel title in the midst of everything that was going on in the 80s. Uh, I mean, even the first cover, we were told that we, we were told it had to have something. And I said, oh, man, I hate that. I hate a lot. Of <laughs> and I, we were shown a bunch of patterns. And I said, OK, I, I can see this maybe with like a lightning bolt behind him or something like that. And Tom said, OK, that's what we'll do then. So when I penciled the cover, there was like one lightning bolt behind him that had some offshoots and everything. And it was like, OK, that'll be the the, the little whatever it was, uh, foil printing or whatever it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when, when the cover comes out, they put like 12 lightning <laughs> back there, you know, so they, so they could, I said, okay, I get it. You wanted to use the, the printing. That's fine. But, uh, to this day, I'm still really happy with that cover for all of its ridiculousness. I think <laughs> that takes us to now we are doing Eric. What we were really surprised and flattered by is that, our entire team on Thor wanted to come with us to do Thunderstrike. Nice. Uh, which we were not expecting, but was wonderful. And, and of course, nobody stuck with our... I mean, they hired a team to do Thor, and they decided that they weren't, they weren't going to worry about Thor being king of Asgard. They decided they wanted to, to do something completely different. I think Starlin was the first writer they hired after us, and he decided he wanted to do something completely different, which was his prerogative as, uh, as the new creator. So... Uh, but yeah, we, you know, went on from there. I'm going to throw my design questions out there and really it's just a couple real simple questions. Okay. So back in the nineties where I was growing up at putting an earring in your ear, if you were a guy was, it was like a no, no. Did you ever catch any flack? We didn't catch any flack for it, but we did have some discussions about which ear means you're gay and available. Okay. And which ear doesn't. Yeah. Um, I don't remember whether we chose correctly or not. <laughs> I have no idea how long that that code stayed in place because yeah. that was back during a time when 
unfortunately, a lot of gay people were closeted too, so mm-hmm. they needed to have secret codes and, and stuff. It, we had no problem with it. It was mostly it was supposed to be more pirate or buccaneer or something like that. I don't remember getting any letters. I don't remember any you know parents groups protesting us or anything that we were trying to say he was gay. Uh, Eric was a little too much of an average guy to to be into that kind of thing, you know, because he had a kid and he had been married. And we could have gone. Hey, who knows? You know, I mean, you know, I think as you pointed out in your discussion, the reason Eric went for it is because a a hot girl said she thought it was sexy. (laughs) That's Uh, right. (laughs) Because if you looked at some of his designs, he actually was still thinking about a cape. And I think she said, no, cape is two sixties. Uh, so, you know, he was taking design advice from a, from a, an attractive woman and he wasn't going to say no. So there you go. In regards to the character of Eric, we were, we had a discussion on the show about Eric being a divorced single dad was, and most of the comics I read back then, it seemed like they didn't bring that up a whole lot. That wasn't something that was at the forefront of a character in any way. Uh, did you ever encounter any resistance about putting that as his history at all? No, no. The, the reason we did it, if you ask Tom DeFoco what the Thor book is about, he will tell you that, that the core of a lot of the original Lee Kirby and Lee Ditko stories are family, because mm-hmm. family is something that readers of all ages can relate to, okay? So the early Thor stories were all about Thor's relationship with Odin and defying Odin to fall in love with Jane Foster and all that. So, so Tom would always relate that, you know, what the Thor book is about is Odin's got this wonderful little family business that he calls Asgard. And, you know, his hope for his son is that he's always going to grow up and take over the family business. But the son goes off to, uh, you know, wander Europe for a year and uh, comes back with this girl that he's in love with now. So now he's got to deal with this stuff, you know, that kind mm. of thing. So he always spoke about it in terms that, that you could relate to as a family drama, as a family issue. And we wanted to get the center back for that. And we thought what would be kind of clever is if Eric had his own kid and his interactions with his kid would reflect and contrast with... Thor's relationship with Odin. Okay. So that in the same character, you would have the son of Odin, but the father of Kevin. And, you know, he'd be dealing with, he'd be seeing situations from both sides then and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, we could do clever little, you know, clever little uh, story twists. And my, my brother at the time was divorced with a young son. So it was something I had observed anyway. Tom and neither one, neither Tom nor I have, have kids ourselves, but he's been very active in his, in the lives of his nieces and nephews. And and uh, as I said, I was you know involved with my brother's life when he was divorcing and dealing with his young son. So we felt like we had enough that we could set up the situation and and uh, give it the attention it deserved. And the reason that Kevin is named Kevin is that I told Tom, I said, Tom, I'm all on board for this, but if we introduce the son, if we introduce Eric as a father, the kid cannot just disappear from the stories. Mm-hmm. And the, and the, we, I named him after the son of the greatest American hero, Ralph Hinckley. Remember the t- do you remember the TV series? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The TV series started with him dealing with a custody issue with his son, Kevin. That was very much a part of the early stories, was his relationship with his ex-wife and all this kind of stuff. But then along some point along the series, Kevin just disappears. When they finally marry the character to his longtime girlfriend, Kevin's not even at the wedding. 
You oh, know, wow. Kevin just disappears. <laughs> so he's kind of like he, Kevin was, ended up being like the uh, third brother in um, Happy Days or something. You know, <laughs> nobody talks about him anymore. Still up in his room upstairs. So I said, if we're going to do this, we have to play fair and we have to make sure that we always know where Kevin is and that Eric always knows where Kevin is and all this kind of stuff. And Tom agreed. And that's why we named him Kevin, because it was a constant <laughs> reminder to not lose him. <laughs> and then at one point, I actually, we actually decided that that was, you know, Tom called me up one time and said, what's Eric's middle name? And I said, it's Kevin. <laughs> and he went, really? I said, yeah, that's, he named Kevin, Kevin, because in his family, every, every generation, it flips. Kevin's name is Kevin Eric Masterson, uh, and Eric's father's name was Kevin Eric Masterson. So he's Eric Kevin Masterson, and so on and so forth. And that's okay. just because my family has this weird thing with RWFs. That's that's why I came up with some weird thing for them, you know, that kind of thing. And Tom went, you really give this a lot of thought, don't you? And I went, <laughs> well, I, I actually, I'm just bullshitting right now. But yeah, that'll work. Why not? <laughs> Friend of our show, uh, Pat Mullen, had a question about why Thunderstrike Eric got his own title. You already answered that. Was there ever a thought uh, to move him into a another, like a team book in any way or... The one thing that was agreed on was that apparently, I mean, I, I don't know whether it was because of what our original plans were or anything, but but even Jim Starlin was planning on keeping Thor cosmic. So I think it was, you know, Eric was going to be given some exposure in the other books because he, he, he joined the Avengers. He basically took Thor's place in the Avengers. Mm -hmm. uh, so, no, there was no, no talk about, like, creating a team for him or anything like that. I mean, we played with the one issue where we basically did the not the Avengers with uh, She-Hulk and War Machine and Scott Lang. And that was basically all a setup for that punchline where they all decide, nah, that's a stupid idea. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> no, I, I, no, no, there was no talk like, you know, having him lead a team or anything because that wasn't really what we were doing with the character. So it was neat because Tom, you know, he, Tom and Mark Grunewald were friends. So Mark uh, had him guest star in Quasar very early on. Um, you know, he, she showed up and uh, Tom was also writing those larger sized Spider-Man team up books. So, you know, Thunderstrike showed up in the background of a few of those and guest starred in one of those. And so, I mean, it, there was no lack of Eric getting the exposure he needed. Mm -hmm. you know? And he did become, I mean, one of the best, uh, versions of Eric besides our own was in the Avengers. Uh, Bob Harris was writing it at the time. Howard, Howard Mackey, maybe, maybe it was both of them. I don't know. But uh, Howard Mackey, the, the version of Eric that appeared in the Avengers was very well done. Uh, it, he, his, they got his voice right. They got his, you know, his concern for his son right. They got who he was perfectly right. So I always enjoyed seeing him appear in the Avengers with Steve Epting and Tom Palmer art and all that kind of stuff and seeing him interact with the other Avengers. We would have him interact with we'd, we'd show him interacting with the team occasionally in our book, too. You know, the, the character didn't he didn't get canceled because of sales it was selling incredibly well a lot of those 90s books were they were canceled because of ron perlman's people deciding that half the line should be canceled so mm. you know that was there was no fault of what we were doing or a lack of sales or anything that's what uh, to this day i mean the proof of it to me is to this day all these years later what are we talking like 20 20 or 30 years later people still come up to me and and no matter where I am, people come up to me and, and talk about how much they love Thunderstrike as a character yeah. mm -hmm. and, and enjoyed Eric as a character. And, and it's very flattering and everything, but it's also a sign that, 
that they canceled a very popular book. <laughs> yeah. Know? And one of the reasons they did it, which was frustrating, is that, you know, when they were going to cancel half the line, they canceled all the spinoff characters. You know, they, they weren't going to cancel Iron Man, so they canceled War Machine. They weren't going to cancel Thor, so they canceled Thunderstrike, on and on and on. They weren't going to cancel the Avengers, so they canceled Force Works, you know, on and on and on. What ended up happening, though, is that a couple of, what was it, even a year later, not even a year later, uh, the, the guy that was running Marvel at that point decided he's going to hire all the image guys to make everything better. Right. And they canceled the Thor title. And that <laughs> made me nuts. Yeah. Because, you know, none of the image guys had an idea for Thor. So other than him as a guest star in the Avengers. So they canceled the Thor title just like that. And I'm, yeah. if you were going to do that, you know, there was a good chance that Thunderstrike was outselling Thor at the time they canceled Thor. And if they, if they weren't going to go by straight numbers, you know, if they were going to go by, well, we're not going to cancel Thor, so we'll cancel Thunderstrike, that's fair enough. But then to a, a little while later, cancel the Thor title anyway. I mean, I felt that was, you know. Yeah, wow. Shitting on our wound. No <laughs> kidding. <laughs> but, goodness. you know, what are you going to do? It's above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> I just draw over here. I, I think I've got all my questions out of the way, man. So you, you have the floor, sir. Yeah, one thing I, I uh, liked about especially the early issues is the Code Blue characters. They were almost like co-stars uh, early on. And eventually, uh, the, I guess the direct editions had like a flip book with Code Blue. So were they were you guys trying to to uh, spotlight them to maybe get their own series or how was that? Well, we would have loved it. But I mean, that was that was, again, what was something that, that Tom and I had talked about doing is we always wanted to keep. As crazy as the Marvel stories get and everything, what we always loved about Stan's work and the other guy's work is that it, it always still seemed like the world outside your window. That, you know, Thor and Spider-Man would talk about the fact that cops and firemen are the real heroes, you know, that kind of thing. And, and we wanted to spotlight that. So I don't remember who came up with the initial idea. It might have been me. It might have been Tom. I don't know. But we started... We introduced this character, uh, Marcus Stone, because, you know, every good superhero needs some kind of cop liaison to help spark adventures and things like that. Mm -hmm. So we had introduced Marcus and we were dealing with, you know, he was on the verge of possible retirement. And and, uh, you know, we kind of did a, a, a homage, in my opinion, although it's been written up as a ripoff of a Jack Kirby story where. He, he becomes aware, Marcus becomes aware of the, the larger, he ends up fighting Ulick on a rooftop. And so he becomes aware of the larger world, Thor's world, you know, and all the threats that are still out there. And he passes on early retirement and decides to recommit himself. And we came up with this idea. I was a big fan of the old SWAT TV show and all this kind of stuff. And Tom was a huge fan, and so was I, of Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. The idea started to percolate about a supervillain SWAT team that would be specially trained and outfitted uh, with, you know, by, by Stark International or by cobbling stuff together in a basement somewhere, that they would be specially trained to deal with supervillains. So you weren't just regular beat cops always hoping that some superhero was going to show up, you know, mm -hmm. which made sense to us in the Marvel Universe. So the first team was their team, and the reason they were called Code Blue, that's the code when somebody comes into a hospital in really, really bad shape. Yeah. And everybody at the precinct was betting on their survival rate. There, there, <laughs> were, there were pools at the police station about 
whether or not they were going to, every time they went out, whether or not they're going to come back alive. It was always supposed to be a nickname, Code Blue. Uh, but the brass, once it stuck, the brass started to merchandise it and all this kind of stuff. And our plan was to show other Code Blue teams uh, that other precincts, you know, it, it wasn't just one thing, you know, that mm-hmm. that police would, just like with SWAT training, all cops would get code blue training and all cops would probably rotate through and all. But we would do squads from other precincts. And we had a couple other ones. You know, well, there was one that was going to be uh, their nickname was Wolfpack. And, and we came up with a couple of cool members for them. We ended up using one in Spider Girl. Uh, in Spider Girl, we showed that there were still Code Blue teams because Rigger Ruiz becomes the precinct captain in Spider Girl, and Peter Parker works for her at, at the at the police precinct. And we had her talking to a Code Blue commander named Tank Yaneski. He was going to be the team leader for Wolfpack. So you know, some of the ideas got reused later on, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was an idea that appealed to us as you know, regular, so semi regular people trying to deal with. You know, because uh, Jackson was a, an Olympic level gymnast and and Rigger was a, a bodybuilder and all that kind of stuff. So they, you know, they were cool looking. I thought they were a cool looking team. We enjoyed the characters a lot, and we wanted that grounding for Thor. You know, because it was when they were first merged that we introduced Code Blue. I mean, it was Eric was still just secret identity when we first introduced Code Blue. So Marcus had actually kind of built a relationship with Thor. And uh, so when Eric took over, he knew something was different, but they still trusted him. And that carried over into Thunderstrike as well. But, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed them because I thought they were great characters. Um, when when Roy Thomas uh, and his writing partner did some those Code Blue stories, some of it, it lined up with what we would have done. Some of it, not so much. You know, mm-hmm. there, there were things like because they mentioned that their their captain Conklin has is married. And Tom went. I Wesley wasn't picturing her marriage. I said, really? Because I, I had a cup on her desk at one point that said number one mother. So, <laughs> so I assumed she was married. And he went, oh, I never caught that. Oh, geez. Okay. So, but uh, I, or had been married anyway, because we were playing with a little bit of a spark between her and Marcus. She cared about, she cared mm-hmm. about Stone as more than just a cop working under her, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I, I would have loved to have worked on a Code Blue series at one point i was working on an idea that would have remember when marvel was doing was it weekly it was called marvel comics presents oh yeah yeah and they would do serials in that and i had come up with a a multi-chapter serial where they where code blue took on um took on the uh sinister syndicate in uh Mm. in the in the manhattan court building because they they raid to try to break somebody out while Code Blue's there to testify on in some case, and they, and they all have to find clever ways to take out members of the Sinister Syndicate. So you know, so yeah, they've never been far from my from my brain. But again, it was a little bit like our kicker's pitch. <laughs> I mean, we they're the same type of you know rowdy howling commandos type characters that all mix together and uh, you know are fun, and uh, you know, so it's very much in the same spirit of those types of groups. Uh, you kind of covered like the series cancellation and, and, uh, and, and you, you had already, I guess, planned the whole time that, you know, Eric was going to sacrifice himself uh, in the finale. So you guys, once you knew the cancellation was in the pipeline, you, I yeah, guess you had already we, decided that we you were, were never gonna... planning, We were whenever hoping that it was going to be that soon. Right. Although, yeah. 
if not for Thunderstrike, he would have he would have died in Thor. Yeah, the the original plan, and we probably we didn't end up doing the same thing. But the original plan was Thor would become king of Asgard, marry Sif, and Eric would stay on Earth as Thor, and Loki would escape for the umpteenth time. And uh, once we once we kind of showed how he survived, how he planned his survival and everything. We would have brought Loki back, and Loki would have gone full bore at uh, at Eric as Thor and killed him. And it would bring Thor back to Earth. I mean, Thor would realize that it wasn't right for him to put a target on Eric's back. And, you know, if Earth is important to me, then it's my responsibility as much as Asgard is my responsibility. So he leaves Sif as, uh, what would it be, queen or regent of Asgard, and then he comes back to Earth and rejoins the Avengers and and gets his revenge on Loki and all that kind of stuff, you know. Because Loki at that point, I mean, we'd already shown that Thor was willing to pull the trigger and kill Loki. So Loki was even more dangerous when he came back, you know. And and that's why he didn't face Thor flat out, because Thor is now king of Asgard, and he's he's shown that he's willing to kill Loki. So mm-hmm. that's why Loki goes after Eric, to, to cause Thor pain and uh, and kills Eric. Obviously, we didn't we didn't do it that way, but uh, it was always kind of in the cards that Eric was going to get caught up in the cosmic gears of gods and all that kind of stuff, and not really survive the experience. If not for Perlman's people, we could still be doing Thunderstrike yeah. this day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, our, our friend Evan Bevins had asked, uh, "Are you surprised that there hasn't been any Thunderstrike revival?" I know there was the Thunderstrike series you guys did with Kevin. Or do you are you surprised Marvel hasn't brought Thunderstrike as a main character in the years since? Well, the, apparently there have been like the, we've seen some alternate Thunderstrikes. We've seen him. Luckily, most writers think of uh, they they want to forget about Eric. They they weren't people that actually read the book because mm-hmm. there was some reference in Thunderstrike. Hella apparently referenced him at one point as a loser. You know, as all that kind of stuff. I, I think the attitude of a lot of writers is that, you know, it was a bullshit idea and nobody wants anything to do with it anyway. But that's one of the reasons we killed Eric off is because there was this proclivity at the time, you know, when they were looking for something to do with Hank Pym and everything, they went through a lot of different permutations of of how Hank could be a superhero without being Ant-Man, you know, that kind of thing. And and it it went on for several years. And our concern was that if we left Eric around, even as like Thor's friend who was the architect for the new mansion, somebody was going to turn him into Banana Man or something like that. (laughs) And Tom did not want that to happen. I did not want that to happen. Yeah. So he sacrificed himself and and died nobly, and most people have have respected that. I mean, when we were given the opportunity to do a Thunderstrike miniseries, it was left up to us how we wanted to do it. And at that time, Tom and I had both gone through losses, uh, real-life losses so we were not in a right headspace to just say here's how people come back from the dead you know that kind of thing so and, and we had kevin right there so we had done him as a legacy character in the mc2 so we just what we decided to do was wherever we went left with mc2 kevin we went right with 616 kevin so he would be a very different character and we would start him out a little younger and on and on and on you know and made a lot of different decisions and I really enjoyed that. It was like, what, a five-issue miniseries? And I, I thought it, it holds together really well. But even then, there, there really wasn't a lot of interest in other writers to use him. I don't know whether it's because they they respect us or they just think we have stupid ideas. I have no idea. 
it's very possible that most people are looking at the stuff Tom and I do and they're just going, what a bunch of crap. And <laughs> Oh, wow. And they leave it alone. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I'm not all that heartbroken about it because when they did end up using Kevin in, as Guardians of the Galaxy, they didn't really write him as the same character. Oh, really? Um, and they didn't do anything about it. They didn't use much of his background. They show him at his dad's grave in, in the first couple of issues. I didn't see the entire run. I just saw a couple of the first issues. Yeah, they wrote him more as a wise ass and the troublemaker and everything. And that really wasn't Kevin, either version of Kevin, really. You know, although the 616 version was a little mouthier than the MC2 version. Mm-hmm. But, and they also redesigned him for some reason. They gave him a new haircut and screwed around with his costume and all that kind of stuff. But they, they got rid of Grunhilda, which, you know, they were kind of a package deal. <laughs> you know, uh, our plans for for Kevin as Thunderstrike always included Grunhilda because she was his guardian now. She was there to train him about using his powers and, and you know, his protector and all that kind of stuff. So I was a little surprised when they decided to use him that there was like no mention at all of Grunhilda. Oh, well. <laughs> as I read these older older comics it's really refreshing to see comics with you know strong characters and plot lines that slowly develop over time because i've become really disillusioned with like a lot of marvel and dc comics the last 10 years or so and thunderstrike's just a really uh fun and endearing comic uh, well, i just wanted yeah. to say that while i had you on here thank you and and i'm glad to hear that i mean i, I i'll be honest with you when i was listening to your podcast at first, I was like, oh, boy, how's this going to go? <laughs> but, you, know, you got two younger guys looking at something, you know, because we I can't tell you the amount of ridiculousness I hear on the web every once in a while, like on Facebook and everything about, you know, like Eric. Yes, Eric had a uh, the, the business in the front party. Oh, yeah, right? that's a mullet. <laughs> a mullet, yeah. 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 And, you know, a lot of us did back in the 90s. You know, I had one briefly. Back in the 90s, which is why Eric had one. But but not only do people talk about that, they talk about the shoulder pads and the women's fashions and all this. It's like, get over it, you know? Yeah. Even when they talk about the way Reed Richards treated Susie back in the 60s. It was the 60s. <laughs> Watch some sitcoms every once in a while, you know? I mean, it, it's don't be ridiculous. We can never be more than the product of our time, you know? That's right. Uh, right. So if you're looking at fashion magazine, everybody wants things to be current, and that's the that's the risk you take when you're when you're current is that there's going to be a certain amount of datedness to to things. Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, at the time it served us well, but you know now when people look at Thunderstrike and they see a lot of the they see a lot of the '90s fashions and everything, and it's like you know, boo-hoo. That's when the book was produced. Get over. Yeah. I mean, do you? Uh, these are the people that won't watch a black and white movie because it's black and white <laughs> or something. You know, I, I I don't understand that at all. But I mean, because yeah, you know, if you look at old Marvel comics, gentlemen on the street are wearing hats. You don't see that a lot these days. <laughs> but that doesn't make it a bad comic book. You know, that's right. So uh, it, it was it was a wonderful time. I. I was never happier in my career than when I was working on Thor with DeFalco and that carried over onto Thunderstrike. And, uh, you know, we were having a great time. And I, I think when the creative team is having a, having fun, I think it comes through on the page. I, Absolutely. I, I think the one thing that, that DeFalco and I do right is that we're, we're able to communicate the fun we're having. We love the characters. And I think that translates to the readership 
and and generates some affection. Not that we don't have plenty of people that don't like our work, but I think the people that love Eric love Eric because we loved Eric. You know, he was a guy that we'd love to have lunch with, you know, that kind of thing. There was very little, aside from having a son, there was very little that was a part of Eric that wasn't either a part of me or a part of DeFalco. You know, he read a lot of car magazines. He loved cars. That was DeFalco. He could draw. You know, he was, he was a freelancer. That was DeFalco and me. You know, so he'd be working late nights at his drafting table and all that kind of stuff. And he could he could draw. I mean, it was, we established at one point that he drew a picture of Thor with the beard for Kevin and all that kind of stuff. You know, and we established early on in that series, too, in Thor, that Kevin could draw, that he, he enjoyed drawing. And we ended up using that in both versions of Kevin, you know, less in the 616 version. Yeah, I mean, we love doing this stuff. And and Eric was definitely, Thunderstrike was definitely a, uh, a labor of love. You know, so I was very flattered and, and, and relieved right. when the tenor of your conversation went towards, that was cool. And yeah. we like, oh, thank you. Okay, great, 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 yeah. great. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. we had a hell of a time getting uh, Blood Axe colored right. Oh, really? Because as you pointed out in in that uh, in that discussion, he first appeared in Thor, and they, the colors were always crazy. I mean, the, the, we were working with a colorist who was very very good, but he had decided at some point that the can't miss color combination was red, blue, and yellow on any character. Mm. He, mm. So Thor was red, blue, and yellow, of course. So he uh, all of all of his outfits for Odin were always red, blue, and yellow. He used red, blue, and yellow on. Uh, blood axe. Now, the only problem I had with that was that I had turned in color sketches on blood axe about what was red, what was white, and that the leather was supposed to be gray black, not blue. So, and that sketch got lost. <laughs> so, we, oh wow. So, if you look through some of the Thor appearances and even the uh, the Thunderstrike appearances, there are different versions of how he's colored all the way up through issue nine. Finally, in issue nine, when blood axe takes possession of the axe back because Eric gets it in issue one and he just throws it in his closet. Blood X steals it back in issue nine. Issue nine, he is finally colored correctly. <laughs> I had to fight for that. I, Ralph Macchio is a fantastic editor, but I had a hell of a time getting... Uh, I mean, we, we occasionally had trouble getting Thunderstrike colored right. I mean, everybody saw the armbands and figured they were red like Thor's and there were times he was colored with uh, his boots being yellow like Thor, you know, so it, it was crazy even getting Thunderstrike colored right. You know, these are the little things behind the scenes yeah. that, that can drive that can drive you crazy if you're the creator <laughs> nobody, and nobody else even notices them. You, know? you just want it to look like you wanted it to look like. I understand yeah. that. For yeah. Sure. yeah, especially when you do color sketches and they get lost, you know, that mm. kind of thing. So mm. the skulls on his knees are supposed to just like regular skulls. They're, they were okay. basically white. And the his shoulder, his, his metal shoulder pad with the spikes is silver. So the mask is red and the the armbands are red. But everything else is, is white or leather, you know, uh, silver or leather. So uh, that, that was the actual coloring. And we did get it. Every every once in a great while, it, it worked just fine. Yeah, and yeah, I mean that was a fun mystery. Uh, we had several suspects, not just Bobby Steele. Uh, in issue one, Bobby Steele is the obvious one. Oh yes, yeah, but there was a, a Doctor Peretsky that was a suspect for a while because it was established that he was a veteran. No way was he was a veteran. 
or was Kevin's? He was a doc. He was a doctor, and he saw a lot of pain in the ER. And Kevin's doctor, uh, Kevin's teacher, I'm sorry, was established as a veteran. And they were both interested in Susan Austin. Um, and who were some of the other suspects? I don't know. There were there were there were, there was one as Thunderstrike was ending. We originally were told we were going to have a double size 25, and we didn't. We, I was going to say, where's yeah, that at? We yeah. ended with 24. Wow. Uh, we were originally told we were going to have a double size 25 to wrap everything up. And at whatever point they told us that we weren't going to have that, we had to cut out an entire subplot where the Enchantress was going to come back. And we had introduced this character, Matt Ballers, who was this guy who worked on the construction site with um, Sapristi, uh, Eric's friend. So this Matt Ballard, he was a big, beefy black guy, and he was also going to be a suspect. In fact, at one point, he was going to be the Enchantress's choice to take the axe away from Blood Axe. You know, there was going to be all kinds of cool stuff going on. But we had to cut that entire subplot out to to wrap everything up in uh, by 24. So uh, we never got our big double-sized uh, issue. That is unfortunate. Wow. Well, yeah, before we were canceled, I mean, we had a... There were a couple of stories that we already had in the percolator because uh, one we wanted to do was we ended up doing a version of it. If you ever see, uh, we did an issue of What If where I think it was What If Thor Took the Throne of Asgard or something like that. And it was basically What If Ron and Tom had stayed on Thor. It <laughs> guest our Thunderstrike. Thor was king and he was really bringing the universe together and he was signing treaties with all these different things and uh, and he was getting ready to marry Sif. We were tying it into what was going on in issue one of Thunderstrike. Uh, and so you see Eric battling Thunderstrike from issue one and all this kind of stuff. And But then uh, Loki is able to release Magog and send him to Earth and take possession of the, the Destroyer. So Thor is mm-hmm. fighting the Destroyer and Eric and the Avengers are fighting Magog. That was actually a story we wanted to do in Thunderstrike. We wanted to have, do an issue where Eric kind of had to take the lead because it was an Asgardian menace and have mm-hmm. Thor and the Avengers fight Magog. We actually did a version of it again in um, in the Thunderstrike miniseries with Kevin, although Kevin didn't get to take the lead or anything, but mm-hmm. uh, but we had Thor and the Avengers fight Magog on Earth. You know, some of the ideas get used or recycled and, and some of them just die unheralded. Yeah. And never, never see the light of day, you know, oh. but, uh, but all in all, it was a fun run. And I mean, to this day, I don't know about you guys, now that you are aware of the character and everything, but there have been two Thunderstrike action figures in the course of the last decade. Uh, one was just really recent and the one yeah, that wasn't too far. There was, but there, there are two separate Eric, uh, Thunderstrike action figures. There are also, you know, uh, those mini, characters of eric's thor there was an uh, an action figure done of eric's version of thor they're, they're always looking for different versions of the characters too so they're doing that i i'm seeing thunderstrike t-shirts turn up every once in a while <laughs> oh and nice i'm always showing you know I'm, I'm i always like private message to falco and go what the hell is going on <laughs> where's this coming from <laughs> yeah exactly and, and you know, so it's really crazy you know that now i you mentioned it on your thing now there's pictures of Chris Hemsworth with and a sleeveless vest and everybody's screaming Thunderstrike. There are all these articles done showing the first issue cover of Thunderstrike because oh look they're going to do Thunderstrike. I don't <laughs> think they're going to do Thunderstrike. I I think it's at best 
a little visual nod or something. But. Yeah, I would think that if they were going to do something like that, they probably would have let you know, maybe. Well, that's not necessarily true. Okay. But, but here's my guess. We'll see if I'm right. I'm willing to put this out here. Here's my guess. Right. At some point, there's going to be a scene between Star-Lord and Thor where Star-Lord's going to walk in and start talking to Thor about something, and, he, and then he's going to go, wait a minute, is that my jacket? Is that, is that my jacket? And Thor's going to go, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, your arms are so puny, I had to tear the sleeves off. Of <laughs> and and Star-Lord's going to go, my arms aren't puny. My arms uh, are not puny. And everybody, you know, I, I, that's my guess is how that's going to play out in the course of the movie. But um, I don't know that for sure. But uh, I don't think it's good. It has anything to do with, you know, people are thinking they're going to introduce the Thunderstrike mace. And while Jane is Thor, Thor's going to call himself Thunderstrike. And no, I don't think any of that's going to happen. You know, in fact, when they in the first Thor movie, when they introduced Eric Selvig, I went, well, they're never going to do Eric Masterson then because they're, <laughs> they're not going to have two Eric's running around. I could be the one that ends up being wrong and. Chris Hemsworth will announce that his next project is going to be uh, going to be Thunderstrike. Oh, no. look out! We can hope. Look out. Do you have like a casting choice for who would play Eric? I've had a couple over the years. Nobody comes to mind right now. Voices uh, are a little different. There was, and I would, I'd be a, if I even if I came up with the names, they wouldn't mean anything to you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because uh, it, it would have been actors, you know, from the '80s or from TV in the '80s. There was a guy that was on LA Law. They played like a uh, a real street level guy who was, you know, he was a high powered lawyer, but he was a regular guy, and he would have been terrific as the voice of Eric at the time. <laughs> no, it, but uh, and and even the guy who um, Jake Johnson who plays uh, oh wow the voice of the older Peter Parker in, in Spider Verse, I mm -hmm. I love him and everything I see him in. I think he's terrific. You know, as as far as a voice and an attitude, I think he'd be a perfect Eric. Um, but Eric was always kind of a cross between David Soul and uh, and Stephen Collins from the first Star Trek movie. Both of those poor gentlemen went through hell. So <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't think either one of them would be interested in anything now. But uh, but that's kind of where his visual came from, you know. Okay. Uh, so yeah, well, a lot of the characters I were based on somebody. You know, um, Jackie Lucas is my best friend. She's a real oh. person. I used her as the model for the character. And then when Tom wanted a name for the character, I said, well, that's Jackie Lucas, but it's spelled <laughs> L-U-K-U-S. And it wasn't until years later, her grandmother died, unfortunately. And Tom wanted to send a mass card. And he goes, how do you spell Jackie's name? And I said, Lucas, L-U-K-U-S. He goes, like the character? I went, yeah. <laughs> he went, Ron, you can't do that. Oh, no. <laughs> and I went, Tom, it's a coincidence. <laughs> I said, if, if, if somebody ever decides to sue, if Jackie ever decides to sue us, I will sit in court with a straight face and say, so, Mr. Friends, you lived with a young woman named Jackie Lucas for five years. Yes, that's true. You named a character Jackie Lucas. That is also true. And you're going to tell me that was a coincidence. You know, I never realized it until you just mentioned it. Until you just mentioned it, I never, holy mackerel, that was oh. really silly of me. I wondered why we were here in court. That's crazy. Yeah, she's uh, <laughs> she's never going to sue us. Of course, it was after we broke up that she found out she was going to be blood axed. So she spent, bit, she spent a little bit of time thinking that that was me taking a shot. You know that. Kind of and I said, no, 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 no. It, it your care, your character was the only character 
of all the suspects that anybody would care was Blood Axe. You know, everybody else, everybody else was everybody would have gone. Well, that's too obvious. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So uh, you know, she she didn't kill me then, and she <laughs> it's still my friend. So there, you know. All right. Good. We stayed very friends, but uh, uh, I yeah, I, you know. So a lot of the characters, Marcus Stone, is based on a friend of mine, uh, appearance and name. Um, uh, two of the two of the other code blue guys are yeah. Two of the other code blue guys are based on real people. When he got a job at Reve Design Unlimited, uh, the woman he was working for is based on somebody I went to uh, commercial art classes uh, at the the Votech. It was mm-hmm. a classmate of mine at the Votech. Barbara Reve is based on her and one of his co-workers. I can't remember the character's name, but he was one of Eric's co-workers at that at Reve Design. Was based on a good friend of mine too, uh, visually and otherwise. So, yeah, I mean, it, it it keeps me interested and it keeps me, uh, you know, uh, fond of the characters. You don't want the characters to just turn into, you know, generic. Yeah, something people. you'd forget. Yeah. So it helps me, you know, keep a, uh, his ex-wife was based on an actress from the 80s. She was the second commander on Babylon 5. I can't think of the actress's name. She was all over the place in the 80s. She was the, uh, the model for Marcy. So, yeah, there were, you know. I didn't try to do portraits every time or anything, but but that's when I, you know, those are the people that some of these characters were based on. I was just going to say, I can't thank you enough for sitting down with us uh, as long as you have and going through uh, the questions from us and our fans. It does mean an awful lot to us. I mean, you've had a great history inside the comics industry, and uh, I'm, I can't tell you how beyond thrilled I am. I got to sit here and talk with you tonight. You've got some new books uh, in the pipeline. I was going to see if you wanted to share some about those. I do indeed. There's a publicist <laughs> that's going to be very happy that you asked. Yes, I, I'm working on a new title. It's coming out on the 11th of August. It's from a uh, publisher called Binge Books, and uh, it's called The Heroes Union, and it introduces you to a bunch of new characters and a... Uh, a whole new universe of, of comic characters that we've been working on for, I don't know, three, four years now, maybe more. Uh, he actually test marketed some of these comics and they're actually out there in the world. Uh, but we finally, he's locked down a deal with diamond distribution to get these things released into, into in comic book stores, uh, around the world. So it's kind of a grand, grand reopening. The, uh, the book that's coming out on the 11th is brand new. Nobody would have seen it before, and it's a great jumping-on point. But if you've also if you've seen some of the other titles, it'll all make perfect sense, you know that kind of thing. So it's it's a, a perfect little puzzle piece. But it's written by Roger Stern. It is penciled by me. It is inked by Sal Buscema and another young guy named Chris Nye who stepped in to help us out. It is colored by Glenn Whitmore, who colored the Death of Superman and that whole run of Superman comics in the eighties and nineties. And uh, lettered by a gentleman named Marshall Dillon, whom I've never met, but I hope to someday. And created by a gentleman named Mr. Darren Henry, who has created this wonderful new... He's a child of Marvel 70s stuff. Okay. And he is channeling his love of 70s Marvel into these new comics. But he's going to be releasing an entire line of comics. There's a branch of binge books called Sit Comics that are humor titles that are more humor bent. He worked in, um, he had worked for years in sitcoms and is a writer for television. 
uh, and he decided that he wanted to uh, to take some of these comic book ideas that he's had and, and get them published. The individual characters are characters like Blue Baron and Startup and uh, Headhunter. Uh, just some terrific characters. He's 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 employing Dave Michelini for Heroes Union number two. Tom DeFalco is going to be working on Headhunter. Todd DeZago, who wrote Spider-Man in the nineties, is has worked on uh, Startup. So he's employing all the right people. Al Milgram has done some work for him. Brent Breeding has inked some covers for us. We got Sal Semo on the inks. So it's it's a wonderful project. And if you are a fan of mine or a fan of Rogers or a fan of 70s Marvel or a fan of Sal's, please check it out. Go to your local comic shop on the 11th and demand <laughs> that they have the Heroes Union. Absolutely. Okay, well, we have reached the end of our show. And I will tell you, it took me some time to type up some of those questions. This would be a good time to plug a sponsor of the W2M Network, and that is Grammarly. For you, the listeners of Unspoken Issues, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W, the number two, M network to download Grammarly for free. Chris, anything else there, man? I think that's about it. I'm excited about the uh, about the new book. And uh, again, I appreciate you jumping on here with us and, and, and chatting with us about your career and, and Thunderstrike specifically. It was uh, a real treat for us. Well, it was my pleasure, guys, and uh, thank you for asking. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I think I said in one of the private messages, I always love talking about Eric, so, <laughs> uh, you know, we could go on and on and on if you had more questions, but uh, uh, thank you very much, guys. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>